1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. I'll read it for us. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, be dignified, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Amen. Won't you please pray with me? Oh God, we need your help now. We thank you for your word. Help me to glorify you tonight. Speak to us through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock. You are our redeemer. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in verses 14 and 15, gives us the words that I believe make an appropriate header for us tonight. I want to draw your attention to it. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. How one ought to behave. Paul's words for the young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. How one ought to behave. If any of us were to walk into each other's homes tonight, there would most certainly be some expectations for how one ought to behave. 
For instance, I was in the home of a family in the church uh, this past week, graciously invited into their home. And as I entered, my host asked, would you please take off your shoes? And I was happy to do so. And it was clear to me that the expectation was that anyone who enters this home ought to behave in this way. However, for some of us, when you come into our homes, we desire that you keep your shoes on. We would prefer not to see your socks, or better yet, smell your socks. And so, please, you may withhold from removing your shoes. And so the house you're in dictates the way you behave, both in what to do and in what not to do. And I think likewise we see that in our text tonight. It's driving home a similar point. The behavior of church leaders ought to be shaped by the house they belong to. The behavior of church leaders here in this text ought to be shaped by the house they belong to. The house someone is in dictates the way they are to behave. We have a lot of ground to cover, 16 verses, the whole chapter. I'm told we only have three hours to do this. (laughs) Don't worry, it won't be three hours, but we will have to move quickly through this text Uh, without missing the main point. So I'd like to make that clear. There are two larger sections of this text I want to draw your attention to. Verses 1 through 13 is the first one, the behavior of the leaders. Verses 1 through 13, the behavior of the leaders. And this is introduced to us with a trustworthy saying in verse 1. And if you've been joining us uh, these Sunday evenings, you'll recognize that this is the second trustworthy saying that we've come across uh, from Paul, written to Timothy, the young protege of the, the church in Ephesus. And these trustworthy sayings function, there's three total in the book, they function as three ways that seek to maintain the gospel health of the church. And so Paul's prayer overarching in this letter, we see that Paul's prayer is that the church would be fit, that it would be healthy for what it's called to do. And that's how those trustworthy sayings function in the text. So the first trustworthy saying, if you turn back, chapter 1, verse 15, it reads, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the first trustworthy saying. This is a statement of doctrine describing who the gospel is for. This is good news found in Jesus that is for sinners. In chapter 2, verse 4, Pastor Ben Panner preached a couple weeks ago. It shows us that God desires all types of people without distinction, all types of people to be saved. And so holding this sound doctrine is crucial for a healthy church. And now we come to the second trustworthy saying in chapter 3 here, and it reads, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's not just doctrine now, but it's the topic of leadership. Good leaders will be crucial for a healthy church. 
Last week, uh, Pastor Josh Moody, have to say Josh Moody because we have a couple of Pastor Joshes now. Um, he mentioned that the term overseer that we see in verse 1 is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with elder or shepherd, pastor. And so we don't have time to turn there to see all these examples in Scripture, but I want to give you some examples uh, of where this is the case elsewhere in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1, we see this. First Peter chapter 5 and Acts chapter 20. So it's important to understand this is a general term, and for the sake of clarity tonight, and for our context, I'm going to stick with the term elder. And so Paul begins to write about this office of church leadership, and how does he begin? Well, he takes time to hold it up in high regard. That's how he starts. He says, those who aspire for it desire a noble task, a noble task. We've seen in context in the church in Ephesus that there are false teachers in their midst, and there are some who have wandered into vain discussions. They've swerved from the truth. They've swerved from a sincere faith. And Paul has told Timothy that he is to charge them to teach no other doctrine. And so clearly, the desired behavior of the elder in chapter 3 is in response to the undesirable behavior of the false teachers in their midst. So Paul then is laying out this resume, what it's supposed to look like for an overseer, for someone to fill this role in the church in Ephesus. Here it is, Timothy. Here's, Here's the resume. Here's what you're to look for. And there's a lot on here, there's a lot in here, and we will move quickly through it. However, there's two helpful categories to understand what's in this list. First is a picture of the person. He gives a picture of the person and then a picture of the household. It's almost as if he's sketching, he's drawing a picture for Timothy that the church can hold on to, and they hold up the picture, and they look at the potential overseers, and he says, do they match? Wanted overseer. Does it match? Find these types of men in your midst. An elder meeting these qualifications to carry out this noble task. And so he begins the description. And look down at verse 2. How does it begin? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Or put another way, a, a person of high character. It's a general statement, and it's described with six positive descriptions that follow. He is to be the husband of one wife. That is a one woman man faithfully devoted to his wife should he be married, the type of man that is a one-woman man. He is to be sober-minded. This means someone who is temperate, someone who has clear judgment. He is to be self-controlled, exercising restraint. He is to be respectable. He is to be hospitable. And at the end of verse 2, we see he is to be able to teach now, what's striking about this list so far? I think what's, what's striking here is that Paul is not concerned primarily with what this person is to do. 
but instead with who this person is to be. Character is the primary concern for Paul here. Now, I I don't want you to mishear me. This text makes it clear that being able to teach is not a take-it-or-leave-it part of the description. It's necessary. It stands out here. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, we remember that Paul says an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must be able to teach. It's necessary. But my point is in the emphasis of the list here. The emphasis is on the behavior of the person instead of the many skills that they might look for. And I think it's important to quickly and briefly apply this to us. As we consider who might fill the shoes in this church in the coming years, we must remember that the presence of incredible giftings does not mean we should overlook a character that's missing. It's not hard to see how that could happen. I think you, we could just look around at other churches across this country. But this is a role for those and only those with a strong character above reproach that is tethered to a gift in teaching. These two go hand in hand. Why? For the health of the church. The list continues. Paul moves on in verse 3, and he moves from talking about this is what the person must be like to this is what they must not be like. There are four descriptions. He must not be a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You can see the sketch coming together. Paul's making the picture. This is what you're looking for, Timothy. This is the type of person they must be. This is not the type of person they must be. He looks like this, and he doesn't look like that, Timothy. And this description is rounded out. And it's rounded out, not focusing on the the person anymore, but a picture of the household. He says, now let let me show you what his house looks like. Verse 4 and verse 5. Remarkable, they show us that the proving ground to care for God's house is a man who manages his own household well. There's there's the logic here. There's this lesser to the greater logic. Look at verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? God's church. If he can't manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The Bible lays out the primacy of the home as a place and the place to raise up children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. It's a wonderful, it's a weighty responsibility for the parents in this room. It's not solely on the Christian school or the youth pastor or outside mentors and friends. It starts in the home. And for some men, it will be the proving ground that's looked to to see the readiness, their readiness to care for God's church. It's a picture of the household. 
well, verses 6 and 7 finish, jumping back to a picture of the person. And what's interesting here is there's this repetition in verse 6 and 7. Look at this. The, the picture of the person, Paul repeats a couple times. It must be someone who is protected from falling in two ways. There's the repetition of the word fall. Therefore, this person, Paul says, must not be a recent convert. And second, they must be well thought of by outsiders, the reputation outside the church. Notice in both verses the protection against falling. So the elder must not be a recent convert and must be well thought of by outsiders. This is the behavior of the leaders, the overseers, beginning with the elders, those who are in the office of exercising oversight for the church. But the text moves into the behavior of the deacons in verse 8. So let's continue. The, the deacons, it says, Deacons, likewise, they must be dignified, not double-tongued or devious in speech, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. It's important to notice what's absent from this. What's absent from this list for the deacons is the qualification of being able to teach. The deacon, which is clearly, it's part of the two-tiered leadership that we see in the New Testament, these offices. We see it in Philippians 1.1. We see it here in 1 Timothy. It's part of it, but it's primarily a serving role. It is not necessary that they be able to teach. It's not listed there. But what is necessary, what is listed, is that they hold firm to the mystery of faith revealed in Christ. That is necessary. These are people who don't swerve. These are people who know the truth and hold it. And these are people in verse 10, as we see, they're people who are tested and proven. As I read these verses this week, I I thought about my own home growing up. I am one of five kids Some of you knew me when I was a child, and so let me be the first to apologize for that. (laughs) Some of you babysat me as a child in this room. My behavior needed to be shaped by the house that I was in. I can be the first one to say that. And my parents realized that. And so there there were a variety, I don't want to call them tests, but I guess I will. There was a variety of tests to prove ourselves to grow and to have our behavior be shaped. And one of these was, one thing we did in our home was we had a chair. We called it the water seat or the water chair. It meant that whenever you were sitting there and we would rotate, you were in charge of noticing when the water glasses got low and you would have to get up without being asked, go get the water pitcher and serve and fill up everybody's water around the table without spilling. That was the test. I can remember guests being over, holding the heavy water pitcher, my hands shaking as I was trying to fill it up and not spill. And it was only until you were proven and had done it multiple times without spilling, had taken the initiative to serve without being asked, that then you were ready to graduate. You were proven and you could leave the water seat. In a similar way... (laughs) Deacons are to be tested and proven. Behavior shaped by the home they belong to. 
It's not necessarily, it doesn't say here a formal test or an informal test. And, and deacons aren't seeking to graduate away from serving people. That's certainly not the idea. But the idea is that the behavior should already line up with the role that they're stepping into. So maybe we have aspiring deacons in this room or elders in this room. Here is a wonderful scripture to return to, to look at, to hold up to yourself. A great list to come back to. Well, the deacons, it's further described there in verse 11, so we need to continue to move. Verse 11, the picture of the person has continued to be painted. Paul says this, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The Greek word here translated for wives, or it could also be translated as women. It says wives there in the ESV. And so What's interesting is that the, the possessive pronoun, there, is not present in the Greek. And this would seem to allow multiple views, views of how to interpret this text, which is the reality around us. If it is to be understood as women, it would suggest that women deacons or deaconesses are in view, and the case seems to be made stronger when you consider the repetition of the word likewise. It's there in verse 8, it's there in verse 11, and it seems to suggest a growing number of lists who might serve as deacons, both men and women. We read of a woman named Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, who is referred to as a deacon. There is more to be discussed on this front, but how does college church church seek to faithfully live this out? What we read here in Scripture. We have men who serve as deacons. We have women who serve as deaconesses, but only those men and those women who fit this picture present in the text. It finishes out in verse 12. And verse 13 returns to the picture of the person, specifically the man, and once, a call, once again calls him to be a one-woman man whose home is the proving ground that he is fit to serve. And verse 13, notice, closes with an encouragement, a reward to serve. What's the encouragement? The elders, it's a noble task, noble to be desired. There's an encouragement for the deacons to serve. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, respect and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence. Brothers and sisters, these are the people we are to look for as elders and deacons. This is the text, one of the texts to come back to. To those who may be aspiring for elders or deacons or deaconesses in the room, this is the text to come back to. Is this an accurate picture of you? Is this an accurate picture of your house? And to the church body, we are all called to have our behavior shaped by the home we belong to. Timothy later in the letter is is called to be an example in his conduct. An example means that others are to follow. And so we likewise should look at this list and say, is this behavior in some sense reflected in our own lives? Will you follow this example? Are you following this example in how you live? 
the behavior of the leaders, deacons, elders. We spent a fair amount of time on this. There's a fair amount here. That's the first section. But the Bible doesn't prescribe behavior without a purpose. Uh, That's a joyful thing because our world will describe and prescribe behaviors without a purpose. But the Bible does not. And there is a worthy, worthy purpose for the behavior that's outlined in verses 1 through 13. And it's in verses 14 to 16, the second section. The grounds for this behavior is the identity of the church. The behavior of the leaders the identity of the church. It is when we correctly understand the identity of the church that we have great reason as a church to expect this behavior and to live it out. Why is that? Let's look at verse 14 with me. Paul is writing so that if he is delayed in coming to them, that they might know how they ought to behave how they ought to behave where? How they ought to behave in the church. And the church is given this threefold description that we could sit with and meditate with all week. I encourage you to do so. Look at this threefold description of the church. First, in this verse 15, it is described as the church is the household of God. This is God's house. His family. That has massive implications. That means we are family. I love the wedding song, We Are Family. That's our song in in some sense. I'm not saying we should sing it after this or on a Sunday morning, but those implications are correct. The household of God, God's family. The church is the household of God. Not only that, but then Paul describes it as the church of the living God. There's another song that I enjoy, a a gospel song that has these words. It says, if you think your God is dead, try mine. He's still alive. We are the church of the living God. It's an Old Testament phrase that Paul pulls forward. God, the creator, the one who spoke and there was life, creation, the provider, the sustainer, the promise giver and keeper, the one that promised he would dwell with his people, that he will be their God. This is the church of the living God. As 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, the temple of the living God. That describes us, the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.22, we are a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Think of that. The living God dwelling among us by his spirit. And oh, we need his spirit Because look at how the church is described in the third way at the end of verse 15. A pillar and a buttress of the truth. You didn't misread it. A pillar and a buttress of the truth. Maybe some of you are thinking the truth is usually referred to as the 
the foundation, right? The support for the church. That's not what Paul is saying here. He is saying that the task of the church is to, in some sense, support and uphold the truth to a watching world. There is not a more noble task. There is no institution, no organization, no school or club or group or country or coalition that has a more prominent place in God's plan of redemption than his church. Maybe the primary application for us tonight is to never diminish the awesome and weighty responsibility for us here as the local church as we consider these words to hold up the truth. The church of the living God. And so we have some elders in the room. We have deacons and deaconesses in the room. Hold it up. Hold up the truth. We have moms. We have dads. We have children in the room. You are part of this. Hold up the truth. We have men. We have women. We have young. We have old. We are to hold up the truth. We have those who may be tempted to distance themselves from the church. Come in and hold up the truth with us. Those who aren't here tonight that we need to remind, this is the purpose of the church, to hold up the truth. God, by his spirit, saves sinners and uses them in their weakness to showcase his truth. That's amazing. It's like a, like a scraped or a broken easel that's holding up a piece of artwork. A beautiful piece of artwork that needs to be seen. So a church full of sinners that are filled by the Spirit can seek to showcase the truth to a watching world that is looking for something. And they're looking for this. So we are to hold it up how one ought to behave is shaped by the house one belongs to. And so, as the church, our our conduct, it matters immensely. Thirteen verses. Large portion of this sermon. Paul writing to Timothy, this is what to look for, these types of people, this sort of behavior. But ultimately, it is not simply our conduct that unites us in this house. But the conduct that flows from the shared confession of truth. And that's how our passage ends, and that's how we're going to close. So I invite you to look at verse 16. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Maybe you're here tonight and wondering, what's so great? I don't understand what you're talking about. Great indeed. And I invite you to hear the confession of this truth in verse 16. Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. We confess that the mystery of godliness has been revealed in Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among us, who took our sin 
and took our place and gave us his righteousness and gave us grace. Him we proclaim and seek to make known. The church of the gospel upholds the truth to be shown. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness revealed in Jesus. A savior of sinners. If you don't know him, we are praying that God reveals himself to you, that you would know the Savior who hung in your place, took your sin, gave his righteousness, forgiveness, redemption, the hope of eternal life, Holy Spirit. We want to welcome you into this family. And so may we as the church who share this confession behave as those who belong to the house of God. May we hold fast to the confession of truth and the conduct that ought to be shaped by it, that God might be glorified in us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be known as members of your household, O God. What a weighty, an awesome responsibility for us as sinners to hold up the truth to a watching world. I pray, God, even in our weakness, that you would be exalted. Help us by your Spirit to behave as we ought to. I especially pray for our elders, for those serving as deacons, deaconesses, that you would help them to behave as they ought to, to honor and glorify you, that the focus of your church might be on the truth that it upholds, that many would come in faith into your household to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.